0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I'm your host, John Yargo. In 1995, Seamus Heaney was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. During his speech, he explained that the adequacy of lyric poetry spoke to, quote, the temple inside our hearing, end quote. He said that in lyric poetry, truthfulness, becomes recognizable as a ring of truth within the medium itself and it is the unappeasable pursuit of this note a note tuned to its most extreme in Emily Dickinson and Paul Salon and orchestrated to its most opulent in John Keats it is this which keeps the poet's ear straining to hear the totally persuasive voice behind all the other informing voices End quote. Ten years after his death, we continue to strain with Heaney to hear that pluralizing voice of radiant truth. Seamus Heaney's Afterlives is the subject of an upcoming conference held at Boston College between November 16th and November 18, 2023. The four keynote lectures, along with interviews with contemporary poets influenced by Heaney and literary critics, have been published in the latest issue of Air Ireland, An Interdisciplinary Journal of Irish study. I'm excited to have on the podcast the organizer of this conference, Joseph Nugent, as well as the co-editor of Air Ireland, Vera Camp, to discuss Heaney's continuing relevance and the conference itself. Joseph Nugent is professor of English at Boston College. Joe is the creator of the iPhone app, Joyceways, Ulysses for You, and the website, The Dubliner's Bookshelf. His teaching includes courses on the digital humanities, Joyce, and Irish studies, and he's written the ebook Digital Dubliners, as well as articles on manliness and representations of the Irish St. Colmkill and olfactory domestic identity in rural Ireland. Vera Cryocamp is professor of Irish studies at Boston College. Vera is the co-editor of Air Ireland and the author of the Anglo-Irish novel and the Big House and the museum catalogs Ireland, Rural Ireland. Ireland, The Inside Story, and the Arts and Crafts Movement, Making It Irish. I also want to note about the recording that around the 28-minute mark, I quote from Fenton O'Toole's commemoration of Seamus Heaney, originally published in the New York Review of Books, but the quotation did not record clearly, so I want to share the uncorrupted lines from O'Toole's article. Quote, poetry is language held taught by being stretched between the poles of competing desires. In Heaney's work, the tensions extend in many directions, the Wordsworthian romantic at odds with the Joycean realist, the atheist in search of the miraculous, the world-ranging cosmopolitan with his little patch of remembered earth, the lover of the archaic who cannot escape the urgency of contemporary history." And later in the podcast, I discuss this quote with Joe and Vera. Welcome to the podcast, Joe and Vera. Hi. Nice to be here, John. Let's begin by reflecting on Seamus Heaney's biography. He was born in 1939 in Northern Ireland and died in 2013 in Dublin. His books include the poetry collections, The The Death of the Naturalist, North Fieldwork, and a modern translation of Beowulf. Before we get to his afterlives, though, Uh, What are some of the most important things to keep in mind about Heaney's life?
1: Uh, For one thing, I would say the in-betweenness of his roots in Northern Ireland and in the Republic. Heaney grew up in a Catholic nationalist community in the North, surrounded by neighbors of the Protestant persuasion. As Guy Biner, one of the speakers at the conference will remind us he grew up between Tomb Bridge, the place of execution of the United Irish men, folk hero, Roddy Corley, and Castle Dawson, the ancestral home of a unionist politician named uh, James Chick- Chickester Clark, who ran the North from 1968 to 71, in such a world his Catholic nationalist family learned about conciliation and neighborliness. Another major thing to know is that despite the association of Heaney um, with rurality and his identity as a pastoral poet, he spent a good half of his life writing in urban Dublin or living abroad, teaching at Harvard moving effortlessly among many worlds. Although one another speaker at the conference, Geraldine Higgins, will argue that he deliberately chose as his places of inspiration two rural residences, his birthplace, Moss Bond, and the cottage he lived in with his family, Glanmore in County Wicklow. his writing moves on occasion into different worlds. I, I think of a, a book, a late book, uh, District and Circle, where he has a hall sequence on the underground in London. So it's a complicated, not a simple, trajectory and background.
2: And that's surely true, Vera. I just, uh, I'd only say that the first thing perhaps to um, help us understand his poetry is to learn about his early life. He says repeatedly that uh, that's the well from which so much of his poetry is drawn. So some understanding of that peculiar world that he that he lived in, and you know, when I say peculiar, I I, I don't I, I mean peculiar as in very different from the world that we now understand and and say very extremely different from the world that my students, to whom I bring quite a lot of Heaney, can have any clue what it was what it, how, how it felt. The lived experience of growing up in rural Ireland in the 1940s, he refers to in the Nobel lecture that he gave in uh, prize lecture that he gave in 1995. I mean, saying uh, among other things that it was it was a a den life existence. He says in which he was more or less emotionally, he said, and intellectually proofed against the outside world. It was an existence determined by almost medieval forces, the movement of the seasons, the moon at nighttime and the hours of the morning that determined the shape of their individual days. And that gave him time to be, I think, close to the landscape, which of course is a theme that appears throughout his portrait, close to the landscape and close to nature and, and a part of the living world in a way in which we, speaking about my students here urban dwellers of the 21st century can hardly actually put our fingers on but of course that's part of the great beauty of his poetry and giving us access to a more ancient world a more elemental world Uh, so that's i'd say the first thing to do is to get a grip on the kind of person that he was the kind of childhood that he lived in Uh, and and that's relatively easily done not least through the very, very beautiful little uh, memoir, memoir is hardly the word, I'm sorry, short biography written by Roy Foster that describes it in, in great and gorgeous detail. The
0: simplicity and, of course, the complexity, but I mean simplicity within modern terms of his childhood. I want to circle back to Geraldine Higgins's article, here, which you mentioned. And one of the things that that struck me was this moment in one of Heaney's poems where he's comparing his rural um, life in Gladmore with Grasmere, the famous Wordsworthian cottage, conjuring of Wordsworth's own rural residence in relationship to Heaney's rural retreat?
1: Well, he once took me. He took us to the to the Wordsworth cottage, and it was he spoke there often, and when he spoke, he always emphasize the rurality of Wordsworth's inspirations, the water, the trees, the wind. Um, Mari's objection, I guess, was to being compared to Wordsworth's sister, Dorothy, <laughs> rather than she was Heaney's wife. So that's a quick answer to your um, to your question. One of the things I... I kind of remember his saying about Wordsworth was that he really knew rurality in a way, for instance, that Yeats did not. Uh, Yeats was not someone who really planted the green, I mean, the, the bean poles that Thoreau or Wordsworth plant, could plant. And that's, mm-hmm. so he identified with Wordsworth real Close to the earth, yes. And by the way, Heaney was an enormously uh, um, active visitor of other poets' homes, which is interesting to me too. He was very interested in the context of writing itself, where they were, the kinds of homes they wrote from, what they surrounded themselves as they wrote. Okay, And that's what Higgins is very interested in.
0: Yeah, I feel personally spoken to Higgins's epigraph at the beginning of that article. It's from Simon Goldhill. And it's I never used to this is the quote, quote, I never used to understand why anyone wants to visit a writer's house. Aren't the books enough? Why would we really what would we really learn by staring at Martin Amos's desk or Philip Roth's kitchen table? End quote. But I am like devoted to those physical spaces. You know, I've I've um, spent a lot of my traveling time visiting, uh, for instance, Emily Dickinson's home um, or other um, great writers' homes, Kafka's home. Um, that, that's wonderful. Joe, I want to go back to something you said, which was um, about Heaney's childhood. And I know Alex Alonzo's um, article uh, titled "Sheamus Heaney's Audio Archive Reminds us of the role of the radio in his childhood. He talks about that first time he hears Thomas Hardy's, uh, a recording of Thomas Hardy's uh, poetry on the radio. Of course, his Nobel lecture is really invested in the ability of uh, this new technology to bring um, someone in a rural town into the world. And I guess I'm just curious about um, your thoughts, Joe, or your thoughts, Vera, about this invitation into the world that radio as a technology or poetry as a technology invites i'm old enough to
2: remember when the um, the main means of um, our main familiarity with the world outside there in fact was through the through the wireless as we called it at the time heaney in his nobel speech as you pointed out speaks specifically about that wireless set And uh, I have actually a few lines in front of me here, down it swept, he said, down it swept, he's speaking about the wire that came uh, through the aerial, the antenna that picked up the signals down it swept in through a whole board in the corner of the kitchen window, right on into the innards of our wireless set, where a little pandemonium, he said, of burbles and squeaks would suddenly give way to the voice of a BBC newsreader speaking out of the unexpected like a deus ex machina. And that voice, too, we could hear in our bedroom transmitting from beyond and behind. Indeed, I do remember that the wireless was was our our, our insight into the world that was out there, um, into the cosy domesticity of his home and indeed of my own home. The authoritative voice, in particular, that came from the BBC, was something that filled our houses and filled our minds with notions of where we belonged in the world and the grander world out there, but also an also intimidating kind of world out there. So I can I can fully identify with Seamus Heaney's excitement and almost a terror looking at that dial with the the names of the of the many countries. It was his access to greater things, and certainly drove him forward. I suppose out of the confines of the village and the, the countryside that he was in, uh, out into expectations and hopes for a wider world. I'm not too sure that I can say much more about that. That's that's um what I what I recall of my own understanding of the radio and what I think of Haney's. Uh, the effect that it must have had upon him. So it's hardly surprising that sound and, of course, the musicality of the poetry is a central feature of of what he does. Once we get to the poems itself, we will see his investment, obviously, in alliteration and assonance in the rhymes and the rhythms that hold the whole things together, but particularly the sound and so gorgeous it always is to listen to his own renditions of the poetry that he very much actually likes us to hear his voice presenting to it.
0: Yeah, and I'm struck at one of the things I took from Alonzo's um, article and talk um, is the almost synesthetic quality, you know, the way the voice uh, has a tactile presence, you can feel it, you can, um, the other senses are activated by the voice, the human voice, um, which I thought was a beautiful idea, um, personally. And of course, he's such a poet of the ear, you know, yeah.
2: Absolutely. That's very lovely. And I have to admit that I haven't yet read Alonso's uh, paper. So I'm looking forward to hearing as much as you are um, at the conference in a week or two weeks' time. But I, I'm thinking of Richard Carney reminding us uh, about the sense of of touch. Richard Carlin, philosopher at Boston College, who has written indeed, about touch and tactility and being in touch with the world. And he as somebody who was literally in touch with the landscape, in touch with the people around him, and reminding us that touch and the skin, in fact, is our is our is our biggest organ. And that even sound, of course, touch is beneath. And behind all of our senses, so touch. Of course, we taste with touch, and we hear, as you're pointing out, with touch. And I think Alonso is probably aware of that. I mean, touching and being yeah. in touch. With the word comes through through that sense. Yeah.
1: The a thing about Alonzo's view of Heaney is he begins with the a factual statement that in 2009, not before Heaney died. And after a very very difficult illness, a stroke, um, he participated in RTE's radio recording of all of his poems. By that, in 2009, that was the most complete collection of Heaney's poems. And Heaney wanted them up there in the oral atmosphere. He wanted them read aloud. I think that's, given this is a conference about afterlives and what we have after Heaney's death, the legacy of that voice reading those poems is terribly important and connected with the way in which Heaney became a poet, which, as Joe talks about and you mentioned, has to do with listening to sometimes to the radio broadcasts of the weather and the, those, those wonderful um, old the I think heaney called it the sprung rhythms of the old BBC weather broadcasts that so marvelously conveys, you know, in the Nobel lecture, um, one of his backgrounds and another is the catechism, the Catholic world of his childhood the sounds of those rhythms all contributed to the adult poetry um the foundations of his poetic imagination so um it's 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 all about sound isn't it it's not just the printed page it's the sound
2: and not to suggest that this is exclusively an Irish phenomenon or anything, but we find something as well in the sound from Beckett of and as as his life uh, proceeds, he turns more and more towards the sound of of the language, um, and radio. He speaks about as being the uh, uh, the great influence upon his uh, his poetry, his, his poetry, indeed, yes, poetry. I'm going to
1: use that word. And and Joe, is there beneath the the the, the... Younger. One of the things that we did with the with the um, special issue, which is in a way behind this conference, is we I- interviewed nine young Irish poets who published their first books after Heaney's death. So they are recent. You know, they are the ones who began to publish at, in the afterlife period, and. One poet, it's Nitha, right? Who comes from um, Africa, uh, who's, who's a, who lives now permanently, really? and she talks about the sounds of poetry being so central to her own Congolese culture, and how she can transform that into her English language Irish poetry. I mean, the the connections are there. Um, the 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 young, the younger poets talking about Heaney's influence in them are quite fascinating. Okay,
0: oh, maybe this is a good time then, um, to visit Nithi essay or interview, I should say. Um, and I'll just read, a, uh, an excerpt about from, uh, Kasa's discussion of Heaney's influence. Um, quote, Heaney was and is to his generation what Yeats was to his. He lifted the local wonders of the island into the literary mainstream. As I write or read, for example, about the Irish bog, it always seemed to resonate with his work that's also a curse for the rest of us, perhaps like avoiding plagiarism. We almost have to explain to ourselves that Heaney does not own these words, the bog lands and the prairies. But this in turn only proves his mastery and his imprint on Irish literature uh, end quote. And Stephen Sexton in his interview, I think also speaks of this, I'll quote from his interview as well, quote for me, Heaney's influence, influence which is massive and profound is in everything else, it's about the way of doing poems, the way of conducting yourself if you're able to comment on your society, how do you do that responsibly? Um, I, I feel um, both of these poets kind of feel the um, the presence of Heaney to be both um energizing but also kind of oppressive kind of yes. uh, an, an intimidating precursor that they have exactly. to in some ways work through uh Vera, go ahead. If, yeah I'm sorry but it'd be surprising if that
2: were not the case you might say i think one thing to point out is that he was perhaps himself aware of the power of this anxiety of influence as we might uh, think of it indeed he was charged himself uh, at one stage, with writing as if Yeats were looking over his shoulder. So start off with recognizing that he himself felt the anxiety of influence of the same Yeats who had gone before and who also bestrode the Irish island like a colossus and a much more, I suppose, what shall I say, more more demanding colossus perhaps than 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 Heaney was. And Heaney's response to that was, he said he'd like to think that everybody every poet should write as if Yeats were looking over their shoulder. And it is a nice response, isn't it? It's saying is that we can be aware of those who've gone before us with all their grandeur and everything that they put, and and we can absorb that rather than uh, be resistant to it. But I think that's that's a very fair point. And I'm sure these two young poets would be very aware of the fact that they're trotting into footsteps that are very great and, and very demanding. So he may give directions. But surely does intimidate him to some degree. Vera will know that better. And I'm just going to say that perhaps his own modesty may be, and and I mean his modesty in his bearing and in his speech, in the way he carried himself and the way he spoke for himself, which couldn't be more un-Yates-like, that very same modesty, I think, may be a result of his awareness of the danger that his influence may be too powerful. Vera will have other opinions on that, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. You know, I was, I was going back to another interview. Um, it's not, unfortunately this, this writer can't come to the conference. It's her name is Gail McConnell. And you know, what, what was his influence? I mean, he was not a, he, his forms are fairly traditional. He writes in quatrains and he writes, he's written a wonderful sonnets, but um so he's not a major innovator of new poetic forms. He's written some great prose poems that are kind of sidelined, but he his fairly traditional forms influenced younger poets. I like what Sean Hewitt finds so interesting about Heaney's tight little quatrains in North. And he says, they don't allow much of a flow. And he sees these co- quatrains as evidence of real change in Heaney's own writings from those wonderfully um, flowing earlier poems, you know, the death of a naturalist ones. Heaney is getting into a naughtiness in his thinking, something more violent in North. And so for this younger poet, that traditional quatrain. Form helped him find a new way of writing his second book. So you know, it's it's so fascinating to me how even a a poet who uses traditional forms can have enormous influence on Mm. following poets.
0: That's wonderful. Um, All all of that, Uh, even the idea that Yeats is looking over all of our shoulders Mm -hmm. as we're typing away on our keyboards. Um, I'd like to back up and talk about Fenton O'Toole's um, kickoff speech. Uh, He's opening the conference on Seamus Heaney's afterlives um, with a talk called Political Heaney. O'Toole is a prolific columnist uh, writing on topics like economic inequality, Irish politics, and many other topics. He's also written a study of Shakespeare's tragedies, biographies of George Bernard Shaw and Richard Sheridan, and... Uh, he is the official biographer of Heaney. Um, can y'all speak to the um, the way in which O'Toole um, is an, a, a fitting and appropriate biographer, bringing together the political and the aesthetic? Um, O'Toole, who's a
2: very good friend of ours here at Boston College, uh, having spoken at maybe half a dozen conferences of, of, of ours beforehand, is perhaps Ireland's leading public intellectual. It's not unfair to say. So on top of the uh, number of journals that you've mentioned there, he produced a weekly column for the Irish Times. He's written a series of biographies. He's a commentator on television, American television, as well as in the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books. Everywhere you turn, Finton is there. Quite how he manages this prolific is, is, is entirely beyond me. Um. He's a polymath. I guess that's that's the, the beginning of those. He has an intimate understanding of the Irish condition. That's described most perfectly in his most recent book, one called um, um, We Don't Know Ourselves, published just over a year ago. A story of Ireland, through his own eyes, across the years of his own life, he's now about 60 years of age, 65 years of age. Um, And it's it's a book that was astonishingly popular and full from page after page after page with insights um, into the Irish psyche. And I guess that's the simplest thing to say, is that his understanding of Ireland, his understanding of the nature of the Irish character of present Irish history, not to mention that he begins... Uh, I think in his early life, as a theatre um, critic, as well as a newspaper critic, his understanding of Ireland in 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 all facets of the culture and the world that that we live in there is beyond compare. Nobody else is likely to be able to have done this with the verb and with the um, excitement and the colorfulness and the insights that Sheamusini, that excuse me, that Fintan O'Toole is going to bring to this biography. So I know he was very very happy to be offered the uh, role of the official biographer uh, against much other competition. I mean, there are many other people there. Seamus Heaney is sufficiently well-known and well-loved that people, biographers and professional biographers would be lining up to have him, but Finton O'Toole was chosen. And I can't think of anybody else in the Irish firmament who could compare with Fintan. Brothers.
1: What I find so perfect about the choice of O'Toole is that he more than any other public intellectual I can think of, has mastered aesthetic work and political observation, written about both of them. I mean, the the line of books Pinton has written about Irish politics, ending with his most recent one, We Don't Know Ourselves, is astonishing, but as, as um, we all know that he also is is a great uh, literary commentator with his extraordinary biographies of George Bernard Shaw, Richard Bringsley Sheridan, and a study of Shakespeare's tragedies. For years, he was the um, drama critic of the Irish times. So it's this combination of his political and aesthetic insights that makes him such a promising biographer of a poet whose aesthetic and political preoccupations are so often related, interconnected, inseparable in some of the poems.
0: I want to read something um, Fenton O'Toole um, wrote of Heaney in uh, 2013 um, uh, when Heaney passed away. Um, This is O'Toole's language, quote, Poetry is language held taught by being stretched between the poles of competing desires. In Heaney's work, the tensions extended many directions. The words worthy and romantic at odds with the Joycean realist uh, remembered Earth, the lover of the archaic who cannot escape the urgency of contemporary history, end quote. I think that's a wonderful description of Heaney's distinctive verb. Um, what do you make of O'Toole's um, commentary on... Uh, on Heaney, and what do you make of the tensions in Heaney's writing?
2: Mm. Uh, there are four points I, I think you've made there, the words worthy and romantic at odds with the Joyceian realist, and we've already spoken about Wordsworth. but it's as well just to return to Yeats again, because that was perhaps the great conflict at the turn of the 20th century, just when the, uh, the Irish revival was at its height, and the pressure to join this romantic movement and i mean romantic in the deepest sense of romantic nationalism was huge and that joyce turned his back on it was a was a a step and a move of great determination and a very difficult thing to do and he did it with absolute determination with absolute certainty as so he turned his back on that kind of romanticism so it was really was about the move towards realism that was uh, embodied in the in the conflict between those two representative figures of maybe an older Ireland, or an Ireland that was looking backwards in some sort of notion of retrospective aspiration, and the Joycean Ireland and Joycean view of what literature should be that looked entirely to the future, entirely to Europe. That's a tension that still exists actually, even within Irish politics and within Irish culture. We can see it as as we turn to Europe as James Heaney most certainly did, but didn't uh, let go of his, uh, of his, of his roots in, in, in Ireland. The Atheist in the Search of the Miraculous is the, the second one, and that's really kind of beautiful too. And I think we see it maybe in Heaney's Station Island, that poem in which he goes up to the place in Ireland That's called St. Patrick's Purgatory, supposedly a space in which the veil between this world and the next world is is translucent, is is, is breakable. One can walk through it. And he goes in search of his antecedents, among whom actually he does find Joyce. So we go to people who've gone before him and people even presently, even today, go up to Station Island in search of miracles, of a cleansing of the soul. Heaney, I suppose, in a way goes looking for that, but it's a different kind of a miracle. If we can talk about uh, a miracle of the of the everyday, perhaps. And it's kind of uh, Joyce is also relevant here. Joyce did a similar thing. He grew up, as Heaney did, in a very deeply Catholic Ireland, in an Ireland, which Catholicism was in the water when drank it in. It wasn't an outside oppressive force, so to speak. It was within us. And to escape, to move away from that was very difficult and almost. But Joyce did it very definitively at the age of about 13 or 14. I think I I imagine that he needs drift from Catholicism happened perhaps more gradually, but there was no escaping from it. So deep were the roots of the thing. So we find Joyce later on in life, for example, speaking, precisely about miracles the great miracle of catholicism is the miracle that takes place when the priest transforms everyday bread into the literal body and flesh of god joyce finds himself attending a funeral or something some years on and he's invited to go up and to accept that communion and of course for an atheist there should be no difficulty whatsoever in doing this it is only a piece of bread but joyce wouldn't do it saying that who am i this is Joyce in a moment of, of of surprising modesty. Who am I, he said, to uh, stand up against 2000 years of belief. So that insistence of the power, actually, of of of, of culture and religion that the, I, I, I imagine that he, and he was in a similar position towards uh, later on in life, that there was no escaping from that inherent Catholicism. The third thing that you spoke about there is what the uh, wide ranging cosmopolitan with a little patch of remembered earth and his fealty to the landscape of Ireland, particularly the land of his birth and the areas around there. His poetry is littered with place names and his love of those place names and the history behind those place names and the lands that they so frequently the names themselves actually describe the topography of Ireland is contained within the titles of his poetry and um, throughout. And finally, the lover of the archaic who cannot escape the urgency, you said there, I think of contemporary history is... Really, it is attention, but one and yeah, and one that he presents in his poetry. I'm thinking of something like oysters, there, where he's talking about even his own present day indulgence and pleasure in a meal is sometimes can be upset and can be interfered with by his recollection of what this actually meant the same uh, moment in the history, say, of, of the Roman Empire and that. And it produces senses of guilt. His, his, his understanding of the past causes him um, emotional pain. He must deal with that. Yeah, he's dealing with the present and dealing with the past. And very particularly obviously he has to deal with that in the area of politics and the troubled the troubled history of Ireland, the troubles itself, which he was party to, which he suffered from, and which he finally had to leave. And uh, Ireland's troubles go back a very long time. He's very aware of that. And indeed, he finds it not just around him, not just in the history, but he finds it there in the museums, and he finds it there in the very bodies, those ancient bodies themselves, as if these were embodied ghosts, so to speak, of the past rising up before
0: him. Speaking of remembrance um, and, and troubled histories, maybe this would be a good time for us to read Punishment. Um, Joe, could you um, read it for us? Punishment. I can
2: feel the tug of the halter at the nape of her neck, the wind on her naked front. It blows her nipples to amber beads. It shakes the frail rigging of her ribs. I can see her drowned body in the bog. The weighing stone, the floating rods and boughs, under which at first she was a barked sapling that is dug up, oak bone, brain firkin, her shaved head, like a stubble of black corn, her blindfold a soiled bandage, her noose a ring, to store the memories of love. Little, adulteress, before they punished you, you were flaxen haired, undernourished. And your tar black face was beautiful. My poor scapegoat. I almost love you, but would have cast, I know, the stones of silence. I am the artful voyeur of your brains exposed and darkened combs, your muscles webbing and all your numbered bones. I who have stood dumb when your betraying sisters called in tar wept by the railings who would connive in civilized outrage, yet understand the exact and tribal
0: intimate revenge. I want to get into Heather Clark's um, exploration uh, of Barry Coke's influence on Heaney in a second. Um, But to begin with, what are your um, thoughts about this poem as... As a poem. As
2: a piece of history, I'll say something, because I can recall quite clearly the moments out of which this poem sprung. It was the very early days of the Troubles. Before the absolute enmity between the British Army and the nationalist population had come to pass, and it was still possible for young girls to fall in love with or to have affairs with young. British soldiers who were on the streets. Somebody had to put an end to that, and the people who wanted to put an end to it were those extreme nationalists who wished to to, to, to mark and to expose, so to speak, those whom they would think of as collaborators. And we've all, I think, seen images of young French women who, after uh, the, the Second World War, were uh, tarred there heads shaved and their heads tarred. A particularly disgusting form of punishment. Indeed, even to add even grander insult and disgust to that, sometimes the heads of these young women shaved and tarred and either feathers put on top of them, tarring and feathering. It's its hard to imagine something more despicable, something more demeaning than that. And that this resonated with Heaney doesn't surprise me. It resonated with me at the time and with many People in Ireland, and that he should turn towards this uh, when he returns many years afterwards to a museum and discovers the bodies of the body of a young woman who had similarly perhaps been damaged. Uh, Doesn't surprise me. The shaving head.
1: Tacitus says, the the ancient historian, that the, the punishment for adultery was head shaving. Is, is that right That's fascinating. That's amazing. And that's fascinating. And Heaney's apparently, I'm I'm looking at my notes from teaching this, you know, this is way back. But apparently there were wa- there were cases in Ireland. It was an IRA punishment uh for women uh who were consorting with British soldiers. I don't know how how frequent it was, but
2: it was it was it was it wasn't frequent, Vera, but it, it happened and it was so ghastly that even those who perpetrated it um were cowed by the public outrage. It happened
1: Yeah. Well, you know what strikes me about this poem is the extraordinary awareness of the speaking voice of his own mm. involvement on some level in what he knows is so despicable. And that is what is the greatness of the poem for me.
2: I who have stood on the Yeah. Yes.
1: And this is a poem which is part of a group of poems that elicited a lot of criticism. North is, well, Helen Vendler thinks it's one of his great books, but I've been reading, you know, these poets from from Ireland who who are very uneasy with north particularly women and there's a mythologi- mythologizing of violence that what it's as if violence can never stop because it's just part of the human endless history and so that mythologizing of violence was something that um, Edna Longley really objected to, but the feminist criticism was the sexualizing of women's bodies in the bog poems. You know, the I guess the, the most obvious place is it blows her nipples into amber beads, such lines. And I think that if we read the poem really carefully, um, we see. The poet, the the poetic voice that the speaker is is um, undermining himself, criticizing himself for what he must do. I mean, so it's it's i I have some trouble with any simple feminist objection because I think here he moves beyond what Heather Clark's essay describes, so very well, and will she will describe in her talk, the enormous influence of the expressionist artist Barry Cook on Heaney at the time he was writing these poems. Barry Cook and Barry Cook's fishing partner, Ted Hughes, mm. Sylvia Plath's husband, um, and their fascination with the Irish Sheila Nigig, the that um, very um, mysterious uh, image carved on medieval churches in County Clare, particularly, that fueled, says Clark, Heaney's mythopoetic interest in writing these poems. They were wo- uh, figures that showed women with their legs spread apart, with giant vulva- vulvas exposed so Clark talks about that influence on Heaney which he in fact finally disengaged himself and moved on from so it's a it's a it's, it's a very interesting new perspective based on new archives that have suddenly become available in you know, the Barry Cook papers at Cambridge University so, it's, it's a complicated poem.
2: It's a complicated poem, Vera, but I think you're absolutely right in pointing to Heaney's own exposure of his uncertainty and admissions, you might say, of guilt and doubt. And it's in those marvellous lines, I who have stood dumb, when your yeah. betrayed sisters called into our wept by the railings, who would connive. That's a strong verb to use about oneself. Who would connive in civilised outrage, yet understand the exact and tribal Intimate revenge. So his identification and understanding of what's being done and recognising that maybe, not just would he have been silent, but he would have been maybe in some sense conniving with this. In fact, it's the civilised outrage the thing that that, that should be expected of any upright, moral, ethical being. That's the thing that he says he doesn't simply perform. He says he connives in it.
1: It's something about ourselves that we never want to admit.
0: Yeah, that he yeah, opened. yeah. It's yeah. great. Yeah. It is powerful. Um, to to return to Heather Clark's um talk, uh, titled "Diving for Crucibles," Seamus Heaney, Barry Cook, and bog poems. Well, one of the things I learned from that is, um, the influence of Barry Cook, as you mentioned, who um, not only is an artistic influence on the bog poems. But also um, more or less inspired Haney to give up a stable profession. Um, I think it was in Belfast and move um, yeah. into rural Ireland. Um, and also just this interest, as you, you say, of the in the succubus figure, who, of course, is explored in Joyce. But Heaney, um, after the uh, after Bloody Sunday in 1972. Um, begins to think of this figure um, as a site of violence, as a site of um, political um, subjugation, I suppose. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit more about um, Clark's uh, intervention in our understanding uh, of the bog poems?
1: Yeah, using these, these archival sources that just came out in the last year or two, um, she she explores how the fascination that Cook and Hughes had with these, these figures fueled Heaney's, I guess you'd call it, mythopoetic interest as he was writing the Bog poems, in the work the, the, the real terrible moments of the Troubles era. Um and He saw, as you suggested, the possibility looking at Barry Clark living in the West of Ireland um, without any um, organizational profession, but working as an artist, as offering a model for another way of living. And this is important because. Lots of people when Heaney moved from Belfast, where he was teaching, and you know, and had a, a career to the, the South, to Glanmore, accused him in some ways of fleeing the troubles. There was that whole you know aura around that move. He was already a very important figure in the north. And Clark's Exploration of her of his friendship with Cook and with Ted Hughes, too, who who visited Cook often, and he and Heaney, all of them, went fishing together, suggested another mode of living of, uh, in which Heaney could become a poet even more fully that he would not be teaching. And so in Glanmore, in Wicklow, at that cottage which was offered to him, at very low rent by a major uh literary figure um come on joe who who, who oh and saddlemeyer um, mm-hmm. heaney moved and wrote some of his greatest poetry um, following the early the early stuff so it's it's she does a very interesting job in recontextualizing that move and then analyzing how he kind of shrugs off some of Hughes's and 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 Cook's fascination with the sexuality of um, the Sheila and the Giggs and these terrifying figures. Anyway, that's it's 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 worth listening to her. She also compares Heaney's work at the end to Sylvia Plath's work. She by the way, Clark just wrote this extraordinary biography. Um who thinks who who would imagine another biography of Sylvia Plath is yeah. possible. But Red Comet is quite amazing. Okay, so she brings her knowledge of Plath's terribly frightening late poems into um her readings of
0: North. That is Thank you for that um, wonderful uh, recommendation, Vera. I read comments uh, by Heather Clark. Um, I'd like to turn to Haney's poem, Requiem for the Crappies, and Guy Biner's uh, keynote lecture that um, takes that poem as a springboard for uh, a wider discussion about context. Joe, can you read Requiem for the Crappies for us? Sure. Record for the croppies,
2: the pockets of our great coats full of barley, no kitchens on the run, no striking camp. We moved quick and sudden in our own country. The priest lay behind ditches with the tramp, a people hardly marching on the hike. We found new tactics happening each day. We'd cut through reins and rider with the pike and stampede cattle into infantry, then retreat through hedges where cavalry must be thrown. Until, on Vinegar Hill, the fatal conclave, terrorist thousands died, shaking sides at cannon. The hillside blushed, soaked in our broken wave. They buried us without shroud or
0: coffin. And in August, the barley grew up out of the grave. Can we speak um, sort of more broadly about this poem? Um, Techniques that you see at work, Uh, maybe some key features? I mentioned something that might pass over many people's
2: uh, sight is just in the second line, the pockets of our great coats full of barley. And of course, the explanation here is that these agricultural workers, simple peasants going out to take up arms against the British army in 1798. What had they to to eat? They filled their pockets with barley. This is where the poem begins. And of course, we return there in the the underlying conceit of the poem uh, at at the end. But the second line, no kitchens on the run, no striking camp. That phrase on the run there, speaking, of course, to these people who were uh, dashing from space to space as they were attempting to find some ground from which they could attack the British Army at a particular resonance in Ireland at the time. On the run was the was the term that was used to describe uh, IRA men who were uh, hiding from the British Army. They were on the run. So straight away anybody at that time reading this poem in 1966 would have some clue of what this was actually referring to, that there was a a personal resonance there. I'm going to have to stop there, John, to say that I'm absolutely wrong. 1966, is it that early, Vera? Yeah, it is
1: 1966. It was written at the 50th anniversary of 1916. And what's interesting is that Haney Given his background, his family interest in 1798, right. he uses the croppies the 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 cropped headed Irish front soldiers of 1798, carrying food, barley in their pockets, and all killed ruthlessly by the British Army at the Battle of Vinegar Hill, probably. Um he uses that imagery, not 1916 imagery, because 1798 was what his family sang about or talked about. And that's that's what Guy Biner's essay is really about. And this image of resurrection, um, you know, that when these bodies are buried or, or thrown into mass graves, the barley they carried bloomed um is is a very powerful one the other thing that fascinates me about this poem is, is that it's a sonnet that's a british form here he is writing i mean one of his most nationalist poems a, 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 a hymn of praise to these um these soldiers of 1798 and he uses the sonnet form um, there's a certain irony and pleasure he must be taking in appropriating a sonnet form. It's not I'm I, 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 I'm not, I am not i don't have all my definitions of what exactly the English sonnet is like in front of me, I forget, but it is a sonnet, right? Well, three quatrains and then a rhyme couplet. Um, and yeah, or, you're right. Not a, yeah, go on.
2: That it is in an explicitly nationalist poem. Yes. And- Um, Underneath, I said, that conceit of those who die and their spirit will rise again is a very direct reference to um, the the insurrection of 1916. As you say, being celebrated 50 years afterwards in Ireland, the uh, 1916 asserted the fact that they were one of a series of dead generations who had come one after the other. Uh, as as if embodying past revolutionaries, that their right to, uh, to, to take up arms against England was because they were not just in a tradition, but they were almost embodiments of those who had gone before and who had died before. So that takes on very great significance in 1966 as people looked back. Yeah. But it takes on huge uh, proleptic significance because that's precisely the argument that the IRA, when they start their campaign in about 1968, 69, that they use uh, when they were without any popular mandate whatsoever, they claimed, here we are. We are again the embodiment of those dead who have died, who have gone before us indeed. So I think, am I right, here that Heaney himself uh, stopped? Reading this well, poem.
1: This it, is yeah. This is what so he was reading this poem all over to Catholic and Protestant audiences after he wrote it, and then the worst of the trouble started, and he stopped reading it. And that's that. That's sort of the the initial point that that Biner begins with. You know, he's exploring Heaney's politics in a sense. Uh, this, the, the decision to cease reading this uh, iconic poem honoring the Wexford rebels of 1798. And Viner's also very interested in his choice not to write about local Northern Irish 1798 heroic figures. Um, I already mentioned there was, you know, uh, Corley, who's who was executed in Bridge which was really near where he grew up. Um, and it's and then and then if you go into the archives, as Byner did, you find out that there were a number of poems written about the horrible fates of seventeen ninety eight people from the north that Heaney he chose never to publish to publish at all and so the question is you know what what's going on here this decision to stop reading the poem this decision not to publish some of the local poems there's there's a lot of complexity here in his um feelings about ira violence and, and it's worth
2: remembering, and it's, though of course, it's hardly surprising that his refusal to continue to read that poem came with its own reaction from the nationalist population, and he was very conscious of the fact that he was being accused of not standing up for his own people. That's right. For a person who is deeply, for a poet who's deeply ingrained in in the landscape and 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 his own people as deeply as Heaney. Clearly was. How was he going to handle that? And of course, his move to Dublin had to be part of his reaction to the, um, the, the, the distaste for him. Uh, and I could use stronger terms, actually, that was felt by many nationalists at a time of heightened political tension and great polarisation in the north of Ireland. You're either with us or against us. And it must have seemed to many that Heaney was being against us.
1: And that's why Biner emphasizes that period of growing up surrounded by both Catholic nationalists and Protestants and the need to learn about neighborliness and a kind of conciliation, which was not so available to him in the wishes of those around him after the trouble started.
0: Two other things that strike me about this poem. I, one, taking off from what you said, Vera, um, the political sonnet is usually credited with uh, to Milton, who had his own um, troubling uh, anti Irish uh, sort of polemical writing. So it's kind of interesting that Heaney is writing in that tradition. And the second thing is like punishment, there is um, the the urgent presence in the poem. Uh, It's our, it's we. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I find that that sort of interesting that uh, Heaney is really inviting us to inhabit the first person experience of Mm -hmm. the crappies. Um, And of course we could say things about the environmental in both of these poems, uh, the ecological, uh, the barley growing out of the grave. Um, and the the bogs as as landscape. Um, can um, can I read um, from Biner's essay briefly? Sure. Um, some uh, a quote, a phrase that I um, have a lot of appreciation for. This is from page um, fifty one of this special issue. Quote. Yet, rather than providing a definitive memorial text, Korhini this this poem marked the beginning of a troubled creative engagement with a heritage of the United Irishman, which was as much about disremembering as about remembering. The poem touches upon a hidden culture of social forgetting in which the poet himself was submerged even as he pursued imaginative attempts to challenge, if not quite countervail, its dominance. The traces of this uneasy engagement with memory can be found in Heaney's published work as well as in drafts found in the archival manuscripts, preserved in the National Library of Ireland that he could not bring himself to publish, end quote. And for the rest of Beiner's talk, you'll have to uh, attend the talk at uh, Boston College in, in a week's time. Um, is there a more you would like to add about um, Beiner's um, scholarly contribution to this issue?
1: Well, Biner is is one of the great historians of social memory and forgetting. So. Um, behind this very focused uh, piece on Heaney, which I persuaded him to write after hearing him talk about what was not published, um, is a real wonderful study of forgetting and remembering in association with 1798. So historians will be fascinated, I think, as well as literary people when they hear him. so, so it's it's well worth
0: listening to this. the hidden culture of social forgetting. Um, mm-hmm. a, a wonderful phrase. Yeah. Um, on November eighteenth, um, we have the panel on uh, the craft, uh, and it is chaired by Margaret uh, Kelleher of. UCD Dublin. Speakers include the poets Niphi Casa, uh, Stephen Sexton, and Suzanne Madsen, as well as um, scholar poet Kelly Sullivan, Andrew Sofer, and Alison Adair. Um, what are some of the questions that you think Heaney raises about poetic craft? Um, what are some of his um, most reliable techniques? We've already um, spoken about the fact that he Uh, Wasn't necessarily an innovator. He used traditional forms. Um, But what are some other aspects of craft that you think are important to recognize about Heaney? I guess we've already referenced
2: um, sound, his fealty to to sound, uh, and his investment in the sound of the language of the people around him. And of course, the alliteration, the assonance that we see, the rhyme and rhythm that are there evident in, in these very, very musical poems. He's very much a poet of symbols, too, I think. Uh, and we see that. Let's start at the very beginning, of course, in what might be his his the the poem that that's synonymous with him, almost a foundational poem. and That's of course digging, um, a a, a poet for whom we find natural image on, on almost every page. If I open the uh, collection there natural imagery is just all over the place. And a poet, of course, a personal experience, so that that personal experience is the well from which he draws. Personal experience, it also has a self-reflective quality in it. He's forever turning to himself and looking at the work of writing poetry. See so many times that he speaks about the value of work. A peculiar Protestant, um, we might think, um, obsession, but the work of poetry from the very beginning is again indeed starting with the digging. The work of poetry and the necessity. This is a very Yatesian thing too, I think Vero would probably say, uh the, the necessity for the work that's involved in the production of poetry.
0: These are just some
2: some things that, that I think of
0: when I when And I think I... you mentioned earlier the the um use of place names, topography, the musicality of of the name of a Town or river or something like that is being um, very powerful, particularly powerful in Ireland
2: actually, because um it's it's said and I think this may well be true that Ireland is the most named place on the planet for historical reasons. Um, hmm. uh, even where I come from, a, a, a town's land as they're called, which maybe would be for many people their their initial. Uh, identity is with the townsland from which they come. Bellahi would be a town's land. These are places in which there may not even be a shop or a crossroads or anything, but a space going back perhaps, uh, maybe first mapped in the 15th or 16th century, which may be no more than a thousand or so acres. So uh, looking at a detailed map of Ireland, it's astonishing just the number of place names there are to these, what we just think is fields, ones that have been handed down and that are still remembered. And these place names invariably will describe either the actual shape of the land itself or rather more gorgeously, very, very frequently, an historical event. We know so many places that begin with the word kill, and these are actually churches churches in which saints sit. So typically these things go back to maybe the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th centuries. So he's awfully aware that when he uses a name of a place, that he's going back deep into history and that there are stories and legends and myths behind those, that the remnants of which, vestiges of which, still still exist. So history is very much all about him, almost as if it were um, growing out of the land itself.
1: You know, it's also fascinating because we began... Well, we were talking about uh, what Alonzo says about and the radio hearing the weather forecasts of place names from far away in British accents mm. and so you get this this training of the ear from the radio of a child hearing foreign place names and there is a way in which what Joe just said in which what Heaney is doing is replacing that childhood memory with a poetry of very local Irish place names. Um, you know, there was an authoritative, dicto- almost a dictator voice saying, These are the weather conditions, which obliterated the experience of the actual people living somewhere because it was coming from above. And He, he is reclaiming the experience of the local, okay?
0: And this is it. a complete digression, but I saw an amazing production of uh, Translations at um. the Abbey Theater mm-hmm. a couple mm-hmm. of um, summers ago, which I think reminded me of the deeply political nature of topography. In okay. Ireland, of course, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I've, I think I've
2: seen the same production, Joe. Oh, okay. yeah.
1: can I just bring up one poem? Just I know it, it's it, just because I have. It's an early poem called "The Early Purges," and we talk about Heaney and realism. Okay, there is a super realistic farmland Heaney, which has appeared early and has never been reproduced in any version of his work. It will be in the forthcoming, uh, the poems of Seamus Heaney, which attempts to be as close to a variorum edition as we can have. But this is called The Early Purges. And I won't read you the whole thing, but it begins with, I was six when I first saw kittens drown. Mm -hmm. Dan Taggart pitched them. The scraggly wee shits into a bucket, a frail metal sound, soft paws scraping like mad. But their teeny din was soon soused. They were slung on the snout of the pump and the water pumped in. And it begins, I mean, that's the beginning. And the last three lines are, prevention of cruelty talk, talk cuts ice in town where they consider death unnatural. But on well-run farms, pests have to be kept down. that That's, you know, when we talk about the romantic versus the realistic, Hini, that's a poem that we don't get anymore. It's just not in any of the selected editions. I finally found it in my early Farrar, Strauss, and Goodenheim, uh reproduction of most of the first four volumes. But it's not... Printed after that, um, there are all kinds of uh, current feelings about animal rights, and uh, which probably made it impossible. But he also has a side of him that's very dark, and you know he talks about how terrified he was, but then he learned to accept this as the way farm life is. So anyway, I'm just throwing that out, and do what with it what you want.
0: Thank you for that. I mean, that reminds me, I think you, you said this earlier, Joe. Um, Yates sort of writes about the countryside as a townsman from from a kind of intellectualized position. But for Heaney, you know, his hands are in the dirt. Like That's he right. has that deep lived experience of, of the farm.
2: Yeah.
0: And and even though as Bira
2: pointed out, he lived large parts of his life in uh Dublin. And Absolutely. indeed. And indeed, and indeed in Boston, but mm. I'm not aware that he wrote too many poems to Dublin or poems to Boston.
1: No, no. The Blandmore and Mossbone are are as Hig- as Geraldine Higgins says, the major source, mm-hmm. but it is important to know that this is a poet who knows a lot of other things about the world besides those major source experiences.
0: Uh, thank you for that. Um, the second panel on um, Friday, November 18th is on the critics, and it's chaired by Claire Connolly of UCC. Joining are Nithi Kasa, Stephen Sexton, Kelly Sullivan, uh, Brian Lone, uh, uh, Moina um, Sullivan, Alex Alonzo, Geraldine Higgins, and Heather Clark. Um, what kinds of ripples has Heaney left in the critical tradition? Um, what has his influence been on literary critics? I leave that entirely in your hands, Vera. Where you go, please.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think I said what I, the, I... I'm really curious to see what comes up because we're gonna have one real feminist critic of Heaney there, and we're gonna have all kinds of other critics. Um, O'Connell, the poet who writes about him, talks a lot about how there is a real difference in Ireland and America. Um, in Ireland, especially in Belfast, she says, and th- perhaps not Ireland, but Northern Ireland, there is a darker view of Heaney um, than, and particularly converging on North and the controversy it has inspired than in the United States. Um, And she also mentions, or perhaps it's another one of the poets, that Heaney's extraordinary geniality, generosity, and kindness has made it harder to look at the darker side of his writing sometimes. And um, I'm trying to think of what else. I, I really am waiting to hear what this assortment of critics has to say. I mean, you know, the famous she- Seamus Heaney, the extreme popularity of his poetry, its accessibility to so many people. Um, one of his Glenmore so- sonnets about folding sheets with his mother, with, well th- that's in Field Day, Joe? The Glenmore sonnets, I forget. But anyways, mm-hmm. uh, was voted the most popular poem in Ireland, um, and the, and the others are away at mass. Yeah, while the others were. Away. So you know, there's this this tension I think between Heaney as this great popular poet. I mean, walking down the street with him, people were asking for his autograph or pumping his hand. He was a culture hero in Ireland, and you know he still is. Um, versus what the critics are doing sometimes it creates a tension. It's just.
2: And indeed Um, just remembering as we are speaking about the 10th anniversary of his death, that is the occasion for this conference and the occasion for this special edition. It was a time of genuine and real actual national mourning. I mean that the ordinary people in the street of Ireland were hugely moved. The country was plunged, I think it's fair to say, into sadness. With the loss of somebody who had come to, it seemed to many of us to embody the very best of what we were,
1: and the huge, more mural or the huge sign painted painted on a wall of Dublin after his death. Do not be afraid. Um, the 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 lines of his poetry that were draped on sheets. Um, after, the, during the pandemic saying, we will, I can't remember the lines, Joe, what were the lines that they, they draped on the sheets all over Dublin saying, we will get through this. Um, I can I can find them, but it's- yeah,
2: did, Okay, okay.
1: But the, the fact that his words became the language of public discourse um, was quite extraordinary. You know, and we all know about Biden and before him, uh, Clinton quoting Heaney. So this is a poet of enormous public familiarity. And, and I'm interested in how the critics will, will read all that. OK? That,
0: that is a very fascinating paradox to me, that Irish readers could both be attuned, could attend to what is spiky and dark about his poetry, and yet feels so such a profound personal connection to that same that same writer. Um, I suppose that is um, that is intimacy, you know, uh, w- with a writer, uh, and a sort of intimate have, connection.
1: And they could have been different readers if Heaney too. I mean, people read poetry much more widely in Ireland. Than they do here and uh one one of the poets we interviewed talked about lines of poetry being on buses very frequently even she said on some of the trash bins there are lines of poetry so poetry is much more integrated into irish life wouldn't you say joe
2: I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's true. Then it gets a smaller country and we're a bit more cohesive than um, a nation as grand, as, as big, as diverse, and as strange as America is. But that's absolutely true.
0: Yeah. Is the line that um, you were trying to remember, um, quote, if we winter this one out, we can summer anywhere? Quote. That's is right. That, of that's course. Okay. If
1: we winter this one out, we can summer anywhere. Thanks. That's
0: great. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful.
1: That's um, how you get through COVID.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, I want to step back and ask you about the process of organizing a conference like this one, uh, ambitious, important, urgent. Um, what advice would you give to someone who would um, consider taking on an undertaking like this one? Um, what were the challenges, the opportunities that you saw in a conference organization? The advice might be to take
2: up a more wholesome pastime. <laughs> a less stressful pastime but yeah of, of course it's demanding it's an international conference You want to appeal to an audience over here but you want to do something new and different this is not simply a retrospective the title of the conference it suggests that what we're doing is is to locate is, is to examine what happened to Heaney after Heaney, so to speak. So we seek speakers who are going to examine new things, make discoveries about it. So there was the process of selection. There was the, I mean, the simple organization and the business of the numbers of people and where you put them and how you look after their needs and all that. So it's, it's been an awful amount of work. Um, I've no advice to give anybody uh, except to give yourself plenty of time and to get plenty of assistance. And indeed, I haven't done this by any means, single-handedly, Vera and Marjorie Howes, and of course, all the very helpful people above. Boston College and the ILA and whatever, have so all been a big part of pulling this together. But I don't want to sound too self congratulatory It could still fall apart. It's not going to fall apart. And I do really mean that uh, it is still possible to reserve spaces, even though we're extremely tight in terms of numbers. And people are very welcome to go to the website and to uh, register for us. It is going to be an important conference with really fabulous keynote speakers. And uh, you'll be hearing things that you haven't heard before. Yeah.
1: Can I just say, how do you do it? You have a Joe.
0: Yeah, thanks very much, Vera. <laughs> um, be, being as how this conference is in Boston now, I'm I'm curious. Um, you mentioned that Seamus Heaney lived in Boston. Um, what were his thoughts of of the city? Vera was a personal friend of his. Vera,
2: Vera can answer that in a way that I couldn't oh, even. That's. Mention. I'm
1: just trying to. Joe just said he doesn't write about Boston, does he? It was a place he came to and worked, and I think he enjoyed Harvard, but I think it was a way for him to have most of the year for his poetry. That was the big decision. He would leave his family. Mari took on raising the children for the semester he was away. Um, they visited each other, he would get part of the deal was he would go back twice at least and she would come once but it was a way for him to have a long interrupt uninterrupted time to do poetry in Ireland so that's that's the most important thing and he's written some poems for harvard you know there are some major poems for harvard but um, i don't think boston was a source for much more than that. What do you-, think?
2: you, know, you know, He wrote some poems for Harvard, you're right, Vera, but he didn't write poems about Harvard.
1: John Harvard statue comes up, one, uh, you know, but it, yeah. So I think it, it, it the, the Irish setting is certainly the important one.
0: More information on the conference is available at Boston College's Institute of Liberal Arts website. I encourage all to attend and spend time thinking alongside this wonderful lineup of interlocutors and conversationalists. Uh, Is there anything else you would like to add about the conference, Joe and Vera?
2: Well, I, I, I should like to add this is that it's one thing to put the energy into a conference, uh, but it's another thing to get the funding for the conference. And I really do want to thank the consulate general uh, in of ireland in boston the uh, institute for the liberal arts irish studies program and the burns library all of those people who have been just wonderful in supporting what i think is
0: going to be a very very excellent conference wonderful um thank you uh for this uh wonderful conversation joe and beer great, great. It's thank fun. you Love talking to you john I
1: had fun